Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you and uh, to get going here in Exodus. This is Module 1, Session 4. And uh, I, like, I like going back and forth between theology and Bible survey. I think that's helpful and, and um, good for us. So uh, we're gonna, there's a lot to do in Exodus, so we're going to try and get through uh, as much as we can. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll look at this wonderful book. Thank you, Father, for the Lord's Day. How great it is to begin on this uh, foggy and cool morning to study your word, to think on the great and amazing and miraculous redemptive plan of God. And Lord, as we look at Exodus this morning, I pray that you would thrill our hearts with that very plan, the, the really first picture of grand redemption that we have in our Bible of you redeeming an entire people. And so, Lord, I pray that our knowledge of the book of Exodus would help us to know you better and therefore to be better worshipers. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Exodus. If it's not one of your favorite books of the Bible, read it again, and I'll bet it will be. So let's get going in some information here. Uh, If you're just getting uh, used to BTI, we'll always do the same format. We'll have uh, for books... Uh, introduction to the book, uh, historical and theological themes. We'll do purpose, literary structure, and interpretive issues. So that's what we'll always do uh, almost every time. And just so you know, uh, and this is important, if you want to start building up your your library of biblical resources, and I think this, that's good for you to do. Uh, we spend more money on iPhones than we do on Bible resources, but we ought to, we ought to be buying truth, as Proverbs twenty three twenty three says. But the, the term introduction isn't just, uh, doesn't just mean it's the first thing we're talking about. It's a technical term in theology, and it speaks of information around a Bible book. Um, what was the title? What was the date? Who are the recipients? Who is the author? Um, what, what are the, the various features of the book? All of that is around the idea of introduction. So, for example, if you went on Amazon and just uh, typed in Old Testament introduction, you'll see a whole bunch of books about this thick pop up because it's, it, these are books specifically just to introduce Bible books. Um, if you have a study Bible, you have an introduction to every book um, that's three or four pages. That's a, that's a cut-down version. But I would encourage you um, to get an Old Testament introduction, get a New Testament introduction. Uh, they're, they're great to have. Have two of each on your shelf, and you can compare them. And if you spend, before deciding I'm going to read, for example, 1 Corinthians, if you'll spend an hour reading a couple of introductions to 1 Corinthians, that book will jump off the page just 10 times more for you. So, uh, so when we say introduction, that's a technical term. It's not just um, the first stuff we're talking about. It, it is a technical theological term I think will be helpful to you. So to introduce Exodus... The title in the Hebrew Bible, These Are the Names. And why does it, uh, why is it title that? Because that's how the book starts. So it's very simple. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that's where we get Exodus. The Latin word comes from that, Exodus. To exit, to depart. And it's one of the few books in the Bible where the, the name kind of says what the story is. The author is Moses. That is not disputed by anybody with a brain um, because uh, that is just what everybody's always known. Uh, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch because God gave it to him. The date of the events, and this is going to become more important as we go through this. The date of the events, we go from Jacob's entrance into Egypt, and we can date that almost precisely to 1876 B.C., to the building of the tabernacle, which is about 1445 B.C., somewhere in there. Chapters 1 and 2 cover over 400 years. Chapter 3 to the end of the book covers two years. And so it, it, it condenses at the beginning and then extends out after that. We'll talk about those dates uh, in a moment because those are really important to interpret, interpreting all of uh, the Old Testament. Historical and theological themes, there are a lot of them, and we'll go through them in kind of short fashion here. First theme we have to talk about is redemption. This is absolutely the Bible's most incredible word picture and living picture of the idea of redemption, of God 
taking and purchasing a people for himself. Redemption speaks of deliverance by the payment of a price. And so God, Yahweh, puts forth an effort here to deliver his people from Egypt. And what is the reason for the redemption? Why did he choose to do this? This is very important. Exodus 6, 2 through 5. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, here's an interesting factoid. God rescued Israel because of nothing anybody who was alive at the time did. None of them. It wasn't because he really liked Moses. It wasn't because he just felt sorry for them. He rescued them because he made a covenant with Abraham. And so that's, that's the reason for the redemption. That gives us a lot of hope that the reason for our redemption was not uh, anything we did. He saved us, not because of works we had done, but because of his mercy. And so that's the, the reason for the redemption. Another major theme. This is where this theme really gets going in our Bible, and that is the theme of Yahweh. Now, let's do a little education here. You see that I have, uh, there's a couple of ways to uh, represent the name Yahweh. I've represented it with the English letters Y-H-W-H. Those are uh, uh, roughly analogous to the four Hebrew letters that make up the name Yahweh. Now, why do we not put um, syllables, uh, put consonants, what's the other one? Vowels in between. That's been a long time since English. Why do we not put those in there? And you can. And generally, our best guess is that the name is pronounced Yahweh. But we don't actually know. Because in the Masoretic text, which is the, really the, the best uh, Old Testament Hebrew text that we have done, done uh, many, many hundreds of years ago, the most accurate text, because they wanted to protect the name of God from ever being spoken so that the third commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, wouldn't accidentally be broken. Hebrew uses something called vowel pointings. There's 15 of them. And they tell you how to pronounce things. They don't really use consonants. I feel as though something was crawling on me. That was just a wire. Okay. Thank you. That was weird. Okay. And for the recording, for those kids listening to this, a flower just attacked me viciously from behind. Okay, so, so in Hebrew, you don't really have consonants, or you don't have vowels, rather. You have vowel pointings. And so you, to know how to pronounce something, you have to use the vowel pointings. Now, interestingly, in uh, modern Hebrew, they don't use vowel pointings. You just kind of have to know uh, how, how it's said. Um, so these, these vowel pointings, what the Masoretes did, what these scholars did, was they changed them every time they came to the four letters Yahweh. So that nobody really knows how to pronounce his name. And therefore, if you accidentally pronounced his name correctly, you wouldn't be guilty of violating the third commandment. So that's why it's, it's often represented as Y-H-W-H. What does it mean? It means he is. In fact, Yahweh is uh, very related to the Hebrew word Hayah, which means to exist. I am who I am. It means he causes or causes to be. He, he says, my name is Yahweh. I am who I am. The I am who I am is more of a descriptor. It's not his name. Yahweh is his name. Now, if you look in your Bible, all of your Bibles use the word Lord instead of Yahweh. Where does that come from? Again, it's another tradition in the English translation of the Bible to keep us from pronouncing the name Yahweh. Taking the name of the Lord in vain has nothing to do with pronouncing his name. That's just, that's kind of a, a myth that's been around for thousands of years. That's another issue for another day. But you'll see in your Bible uh, the name Lord in all capitals. That means in Hebrew, it's Yahweh. Once in a while, you'll see God in all capitals, the Lord your God, and that is Yahweh as well. So uh, there, there is a wonderful translation of the Bible being worked on right now um, by men that I know and they're going to finally just put Yahweh in there instead of Lord because we have to make this explanation all the time. Um, and, and it's very confusing. And so we want to be as accurate as we can. But Yahweh, 
is a, obviously a major theme in Exodus. This is where Moses is introduced uh, really to this name. Now, by the way, it is a myth that Yahweh did not reveal his name until he revealed it to Moses in Exodus 3. Um, that's a myth. Eve called him Yahweh in Genesis 4. So um, Adam and Eve knew the name of God. We just kind of have to go back and, and, and find that. So we have the name of Yahweh mentioned numbers of times. We have the knowledge of Yahweh. We have the fear of Yahweh. We have uh, just his, his name representing who he is. Um, the, the name is always associated with his reputation. Knowledge of Yahweh is associated with our love for him, that if you love God, you want to know him. And fear of Yahweh is associated with our obedience. And so his name is everything. Um, th- that's why he said, don't take my name in vain. It has nothing to do with what you speak. It has to do with your life. Like a woman takes the name of her husband, and if she has been unfaithful to him, if she is uh, sinful outside the marriage, she has taken his name in vain, in emptiness. Does that make sense? And so Yahweh is important. So now that doesn't mean that uh, you speak God's name glibly. We don't do that either. But it does mean there's a bigger issue than just what comes out of your mouth. And then there's the theme of holiness. Holiness, Exodus 3, 5. The angel of the Lord, which is the Lord Jesus Christ, spoke to Moses in Exodus 3, 5. Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Why? Because God is there. Um, some, people, some, some people in the New Testament church will say, well, where you meet is really not that important. I would... I would argue strongly against that. Where we meet is important. Yes, Jesus said we'll worship in spirit and truth. You can worship anywhere you, you want. But where you meet is important. Look right here is a gathering of many, many people who have the Holy Spirit indwelling in them. This is a place where God is. And so this becomes a holy place when we meet here to, uh, to worship. Now, when they had the election here, that became an unholy place. But that's, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let that go by the wayside. Holiness. If you read through Exodus, just looking for the theme of holiness, it'll jump out at you everywhere. Then the theme of the glory of God. This is where God really begins to uh, show the idea of glorifying himself on a grand scale. Exodus fourteen seventeen. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Exodus sixteen seven. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? 33.18, Moses said, please show me your glory. 33.22, while my glory passes by. And so um, the, the glory of God is huge here. And, and by the way, this is, this is why God does everything. This is the purpose of God doing anything is ultimately for his own glory. Why did he uh, allow the, it just says here in Exodus fourteen seventeen. why did he allow the Egyptians to run into the, the, uh, the dry bed of the Red Sea? It was simply so God could get glory over Pharaoh. And this is a longer story for another day. Um, <clears throat> but the Pharaoh at the time was a 26-year-old man by the name of Amenhotep II. And there is no place in the Bible that says he died of that he was standing by. He's not going to run into the Red Sea. He's watching his army. And we know that that happened about midway through the, that year. And a few months later, when the winter was beginning, when you never go on trips, Amenhotep II went on a trip. He brought a few people and he went on this trip to go find a new army because he didn't have one. And he brought a couple of hundred thousand slaves back so that he could have a new army. Why? Because his was floating at the bottom of the Red Sea. And so... God got glory over Amenhotep, not by killing him, but by leaving him alive to watch his army decimated. That's how he got glory over him. And that's, you know, how much better is that? that that's, that's an awesome thing that God did. Then the patriarchs. Now we begin to see that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are not just Sunday school stories. They're not coloring pages. 
These are the patriarchs that led to the nation of Israel. And Israel now, the exodus, is connected to the patriarchs. This, this story has a theme. It has a, a continued uh, storyline. So the actions of exodus are connected to God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we keep that connection. This is very, very important because the church of Jesus Christ is connected vitally to the promise God made to Abraham to bless all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all tongues through him. We're blessed because Abraham had a descendant named Jesus Christ. And so uh, we want to keep that connection all through Scripture. And hopefully as we go through um, this first module, you'll begin to see that more and more. And then we see the theme of covenants. Told you there was a lot in Exodus. The theme of covenants. The Abrahamic covenant. That's the basis for what happens at Sinai. This says this several places. Chapter 2, chapter 6 in particular. The Israelite covenant, that's my favorite name for it. It's more popularly called the Mosaic covenant or the Sinaitic covenant. It's called the Mosaic covenant because Moses was the mediator, but the covenant wasn't with Moses. It was with Israel, and it's called the Sinaitic covenant because it was at Mount Sinai. The Israelite covenant makes the most sense to me because it's with the Israelites. The Israelite covenant was the means by which God will fulfill in part, his promise to Abraham to bring a blessing to the nations. This is the beginning point. Israel is the conduit through which the blessing to all nations will come. The Israelite covenant is based on what? It's based on election. It's based on God's choice of Abraham. How many places in the Bible does the, does the Bible tell us why God chose Abraham? Zero. There's no reason given. He simply chose him. Some guy from basically what would be Babylon. And he turned him into a nation. And then Israel is to manifest in their lives the, the call of God. We see that in the giving of the law in Exodus 20. Then you have the, uh, the theme of the Sabbath. Theme of the Sabbath, this is very important. This is the sign of God's covenant with Israel. This is the sign of the Israelite covenant. It testifies to the reality of who they are as God's people. This is why we don't hold to a law of Sabbath because we're not under the, the, the Israelite covenant. So we don't hold to that at all. Um, what was the purpose of the manna when it first started coming? No manna comes down on the seventh day. So what can you do? You, you can't do anything. You can't go out and gather the manna. What this began was training Israel to obey Sabbath. They go outside their tent. I'm going to gather manna. Well, there's none there. They can't do it. <clears throat> I don't admit this, but do you ever, um, have you ever, if, if you're one of those uh, guys or gals who has a job that pays the bills, but you don't really like, and do you ever wake up just sick enough to not go to work, but well enough to enjoy your day? <laughs> and you kind of go, this is okay. I can do it. This is God training a nation that has been working as slaves seven days a week for 400 years to stop and take a day to worship. And so it is the sign of uh, the, the old covenant, the covenant with Israel. That doesn't mean the Sabbath principles don't apply. We should take the Lord's day. That's another topic for another time. But the principle is still there. Then we have the theme of the Passover and unleavened bread. Passover and unleavened bread. This is uh, God instituting his, uh, his divine plan to rescue Israel. And he gives them this meal to uh, help them remember what he's about to do. Uh, unleavened bread, all through scripture, uh, the concept of leaven or yeast um, is, is very symbolic of sin. Because you put a little bit in and it spreads everywhere. And so that's why um, Passover and unleavened bread go together. And then you have the theme of the Decalogue. The Ten Commandments, uh, literally, ten words. That's what it says in, in Exodus 20. These are the ten words. That doesn't mean individual words. It means uh, sets of words. But these aren't just external. They speak to the heart. And it is a Christian myth that says, well, the Old Testament was about how you act outside. And the New Testament is about what you think inside. That's a myth. Um, the, the, the commandment, you shall not covet. Where does coveting take place? It takes place in the heart. And every sin uh, represented by the Decalogue and every set of obedient actions represented by the Decalogue start with a heart attitude, with, a, with a, re a redeemed heart, a regenerate heart. That's another topic for another day. Is there regeneration in the Old Testament? Yes, 
not to the level in the New Testament. We'll come back to that in, in a number of weeks. Then you have the theme of the tabernacle. And, and I hope you got to sit through the messages we did in Exodus a few months ago uh, when we got to that. It's, it's um, fascinating how the tabernacle is the point of connection of Yahweh with his people. This is God beginning the redemptive process of connecting himself to sinful humanity. And he uses the tabernacle. This is the place where God's presence would, would dwell with his people. It was what we might call a corporate indwelling for a corporate nation. And now what was lost at Eden uh, is for Israel to a small degree restored. And we've talked about this a few times in our messages in the Pentateuch, but you remember what both in the tabernacle and then in the temple, what decorated the, the tabernacle? Things like pomegranates and almonds and trees and angels, because it's a little tiny representation of what? Of the Garden of Eden, of the last time that man had uninterrupted fellowship with God. What was lost at Eden is, for Israel to a certain extent, restored. In Eden, what was mankind to do? They were to serve and to guard. It says this in, in Genesis 2. In the tabernacle, the Levites are called in Numbers 3 to do what? Serve and to guard. And so they do the same thing that Adam was to do. And in a sense, there's a, there's a restoration here. And a, certainly a picture of a future greater restoration I'm sure you've heard this, and this is, uh, I, I love how Scripture ties together this way. John 1.14 says that Jesus came and dwelt among us, literally pitched his tent, pitched his, what, tabernacle among us. Jesus brought the presence of God and fellowship with the Creator. So, there we go. A lot of themes in Exodus, so next time you read it, slow down, because there's a lot in there. What is the purpose of this book? Yahweh who is the God of creation in Genesis, the God of the patriarchs at the end of Genesis, at the beginning of Exodus, redeemed, he delivered the sons of Israel from bondage in Egypt and entered into a covenant with the nation of Israel at Sinai. So, the God of creation, that's how he identifies himself. He is the God of the patriarchs. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and you recall in the New Testament, Jesus will use that present tense uh, verb, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to prove that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive and will be resurrected and God is still their God. So amazing how the Lord uses his own word. He delivered the sons of Israel based on the, on the Abrahamic covenant from bondage. Technically speaking, there was no nation of Israel. A nation needs some documents, right? A nation needs a constitution. And so what you had were the sons of Israel. You had these millions of descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now they're officially formed into a nation at Mount Sinai. That's where they get their constitution, otherwise known as the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Now, I talked to you, talked to you last week about the importance of literary structure. So again... These are, this is not the time to tune out. This is the time to praise God for how organized he is, how incredibly um, uh, perceptive he, he understands that we need organization. He's made us to be organized creatures, and, he's, and he has now presented his word in organized fashion. So here's the literary structure, and we could do it with uh, the three R's of Exodus. Redemption would be the first one, obviously. The redemption of the sons of Israel from bondage in Egypt Yahweh acquires the seed of Abraham. He takes possession of his people. The oppression of the sons of Israel because of the uh, multiplication of the seed of, of Abraham uh, happens in the first chapter. You see this oppression, but what happens? Why are they in slavery from the purposes of God? Um, they're, they're enslaved seven days a week. There's nothing to do except have babies. And so they just start multiplying like crazy. The deliverer, Moses, of the sons of Israel, the seed of Abraham, uh, from the bondage in, in Egypt, he delivers them, chapters 2 through 4. We see Moses now introduced. And then in chapters 5 through 15, you have uh, the actual deliverance of the nation, that they are coming out of Egypt. Um, one of my favorite sermons I ever got to study for was preaching at, uh, at Steadfast Bible Conference a few years ago on the... Uh, the Red Sea crossing, Exodus 14. If you're interested in that, go, go listen to it online. But it's a, it's a phenomenal story, what God does. It's just stunning. So there's the first R, redemption. 
Second are the revelation. The revelation to redeemed Israel at Sinai. Yahweh has made a covenant with the nation of Israel, with the seed of Abraham. He gives them direction. He gives them a covenant. He gives them actual words that will be written down. And what did they have before? Well, they had whatever guidance, whatever leadership they had based on what was passed down from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was it. And we don't know what other revelation God may have given, but this is when it really becomes official that he has revealed himself to them um, both in the way he gives instruction before the Exodus, revealed himself at the Exodus, the, the Shekinah glory of God. If you remember Exodus 14, um, there's this weird phenomenon where the glory of God shines light on Israel and darkness behind them to, uh, to Egypt. So Egypt is in the dark and Israel is in the light. Amazing. And then you have the theme of renewal. Israel breaks the covenant almost immediately, but God renews the covenant. This is uh, chapters 32 through 40, and we have the construction of the tabernacle, Yahweh's presence in the, in the midst of Israel at Sinai. And so we get a, a little taste of what the rest of the Old Testament will be. Breaking of the covenant, God's faithfulness. Breaking of the covenant, God's faithfulness. Then breaking of the covenant, God's discipline in faithfulness. Breaking of the covenant, God's discipline and faithfulness. And the end of the Old Testament ends basically on a big dark note that I will fill their land with what? With a curse. And you go, ah, that's the end of the Old Testament. And the first words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament, blessed are the poor in spirit. So now we have uh, the the coming of Christ is definitely needed. But at the end of Exodus, already they messed up. And God told Moses, I'm not going with them. When they go to the promised land and Moses panicked and said, please. And you read the, these last chapters of Exodus where, where Moses is pleading with God to keep his covenant. Now, God was always going to keep his covenant, but Moses was the means by which that intercession happened. OK, now we have some interesting interpretive issues, which uh, the, the reason to do these is that ever, from now on, when you read through this book for the rest of your life, you kind of have this in the back of your mind that you you have an answer to these questions. This one has to do with the sovereignty of God versus the responsibility of man because there's a major issue around the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And the question is, who did it? Who hardened his heart? Well, you have, um, you have a couple of things to consider here. First of all, you have uh, many times where Yahweh is the subject of the verb. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart. I have hardened his heart. And then other times uh, uh, it, it can be translated, I will strengthen his heart. It's the same word used in a different fashion just to mean I'm going to create this recalcitrant attitude. Then you have texts where Pharaoh is the subject of the verb. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts. Then you have texts where there is no specific agent. You have Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It was strengthened. It was hardened. So it becomes a passive verb that something acted on Pharaoh to harden his heart. We just don't know what. So how do you, how do you mix this two? This is our first real lesson in the, uh, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Because the big question is, did God harden Pharaoh's heart Or is Pharaoh completely responsible for his own stubbornness? And the answer is yes to both. Here's the key, Exodus 14.4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and they did so. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think for one minute that Pharaoh, as he's watching his Uh, his army be swept away? Do you think he's crying out to God saying, you hardened my heart. If only you had let me come to faith, I would have. But I'm, I'm a victim here. Can you see that? No. Those who don't believe in the doctrine of election will say they will create a third category of person that does not exist. That is the category of a person who says, uh, who supposedly says, If God had only elected me, if God had only chosen me, I would love to be saved. I would love to go to heaven. That person does not exist. There is no category for that. 
When God chooses for salvation, that is His act. When somebody chooses to not be saved, that is their act. Now, how do those two go together? They're like the, they're like the um, parallel tracks of a railroad track. They are really close, but they never meet. And so how do, we, how do we understand that? We understand that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh hardened his own heart and is responsible. That's, that's as far as we go. Exodus 14, 17, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. Why did God choose Israel to live so that he would get glory in his grace and his mercy? Why did God choose Egypt to die so that he would get glory in his wrath and in his justice? What's the end goal? The glory of God. And we don't question that. Another issue. The bridegroom of blood. Now, this is, a, this is a funny little text that just kind of inserts itself in Exodus 4, and you kind of go, where did that come from? It's almost like, did I spill coffee on the page and it made something weird happen? Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. And it was said then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Okay, weird little thing here. God tells Moses, Go give Pharaoh this big speech. Moses says, Okay, I'm on the way. And uh, he's staying someplace on the way to go see Pharaoh. And the Lord comes and it says the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. It doesn't say whether he sought to put Moses to death or sought to put his son to death who had not been circumcised. It doesn't say. The point is, is that Moses was not in conformity with the Abrahamic covenant. And God wasn't going to send a servant in to do spiritual battle who was not taking care of the basics who was not doing uh, what he was supposed to do. Moses had broken covenant with God, the Abrahamic covenant. He wasn't demonstrating faith in God. And so uh, it's probably likely that Moses didn't do it because his wife originally protested uh, circumcision. His wife was not an Israelite. His wife was a Midianite. And who knows? The the theory is is that uh, when their son was born, he got out his knife and he was about to, and she's like, hold on, we don't do that around here. But then she comes around and she becomes the agent of God to, uh, in very dramatic fashion, say, you need to obey the Lord. She does it in kind of a sinful fashion. You're a bridegroom of blood to me, uh, calling them names and so forth. But why would God put those five verses in there? Because it's very clear that covenant obedience is important to him. And he takes it seriously. And that never changes, by the way. Our freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we get to violate the new covenant anytime we want. Our freedom in Christ means we are free to obey the new covenant. That's our freedom. And what about the plagues? I I hate to have to bring this up, but the fact is, is that the majority of seminaries in the United States today would teach that the plagues in Exodus were anything other than a supernatural action. And there's some options for this. Some would say it was an intensified natural phenomenon. Um, that's That's the most popular view. Uh, that maybe there were some cosmic things happening, there were some geological things happening, um, that there were seasonal things happening. How did, the, how did the Nile River turn to blood? Well, there's a popular view that says, well, there's this red clay that came loose because of floods, and, and it flowed all through the Nile, and it made it appear to be blood. Great. How does that explain all the water jars in every house turning into blood? It doesn't. Then there's uh, the, the theory called the literary framework theory. That it's symbolic language, but not historical reality. I've tried to understand that. It makes no sense to me. I'm a fairly intelligent man, and I, I couldn't figure that one out. So um, if the Bible seems so lofty that it, it's impossible to understand, you're probably going down the wrong path. There's only one option. God said he would do miracles, and he did. They're supernatural actions. I told you this would be important and I want to spend a few minutes on this and then we will um, be close to being done here. I want to talk about the date of the Exodus. As you're reading your Bible, 
it probably doesn't make a lot of difference to you. But there are some ramifications to the date of the Exodus that I'll talk about here in a moment. There's basically two theories. There's what they call the early date or the late date. The early date would be almost precisely 1446 B.C. That's the early date. Now, how do we get this? 1 Kings 6 verse 1 tells us what the Bible says. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Zev, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Do you get a sense that when God wants to give a specific date, he's very capable of doing so? He gave the month, the year, to be very clear. That is 966 B.C. That is well established from multiple sources. Very established uh, uh, Solomon's reign beginning um, four years before that. So we're in the fourth year here. 200 years earlier, Judges 11, verse 26, Jephthah is in negotiations with the Ammonite king over claims over certain lands. And he states in Judges eleven twenty six, while Israel lived in Heshbon and its villages, and in Arior and its villages, and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Arnon, 300 years, why did you not deliver them within that time? Now, that evidence isn't quite as clear as 1 Kings 6, verse 1, but it's a lot more closer to the early date of 1446 than it is to the late date uh, of the, the 12th century, so or the 13th century, rather. So now, the burden of proof is on those that say the late date um, is wrong. Or the early date is wrong, rather. You have another bit of evidence. The Jubilee year cycles. The cycle of Jubilee year celebrations hit 1446 B.C. exactly when working backwards. Remember, the Jubilee year is every 50 years. 574 B.C. is the last recorded Jubilee year according to the Talmud. If 1446 was the year or nearly the exact year that God gave instructions concerning the year of Jubilee it's logical that that's when the countdown would begin, right? And so um, it goes back all the way to 1446 and hits it exactly. That's internal evidence. There's some external evidence that uh, it's not as strong, but it's still valid. The late evidence, uh, the late Exodus evidence over the years has been slowly deteriorating over time. Um, Dr. Bryant Wood says, quote, the 13th century Exodus conquest theory was formulated by William F. Albright in the 1930s based largely on Palestinian archaeological evidence. Oh, the late date was based on archaeology, not on the Bible. He goes on, beginning in the 1970s, evidence for the proposal dissipated and most Palestinian archaeologists abandoned the idea. Remember, I've always told you that archaeology will ultimately support the Bible. It doesn't prove the Bible. The Bible doesn't need to be proven by anybody, but it will always support the Bible. So you dig up something that you think um, uh, contradicts Scripture, what do you do? Keep digging, because there will be more. Now, interestingly, um, rather than seriously consider an early Exodus date, the same Palestinian archaeologists who had uh, argued for a late date Instead of saying, hmm, archaeology seems to be matching what the Bible says, generally speaking, they just decided, well, the Exodus never happened. Because they would rather believe nothing than believe Scripture. So why is that important? Why is that important? Because we don't believe what the Bible says or disbelieve what the Bible says or form Theories about what the Bible says based on external evidence. That's huge. We believe what the Bible says because the Bible says what it says. Um, the evidence I gave you a minute ago about Amenhotep II, it is airtight. Amenhotep II, by the way, had four sons. And he built obelisks to son number two, three, and four as adults. Like, that's what you did as a pharaoh. You, you, built, you built these monuments to your adult sons because one of them could be pharaoh after you. All of the monuments ever found for his firstborn son are only when he's a child. There are no adult ones. Now, that could be said to be an argument from silence, but why are, there, why are they not found where they find son number two, three, and four as adults? Why is there not one of his oldest son? 
because he was 26 years old, Amenhotep II was, and his oldest son died in the 10th plague. There was no adult oldest son of Amenhotep II. Put all that together and you get a pretty strong argument. Believe the Bible because the, the Bible says so. It's that simple. So we take the early date. Evidence for the late date, it's going away. It's going away. It's really not there at all. Okay, now this is odd. This went faster than I thought. So, do you have any questions about Exodus? Yes. The last one recorded was in 574 BC, and um, this is obviously right before the wheels come off of Israel. And if you work backwards, um, you'll you'll arrive at 1446. That's the theory. Uh, and that's, by the way, uh, if, you're, if you're doing subtraction, you go, well, six, four from six, there's going to be a two left over in there. Um, the Israelite calendar is 360 days. So you make adjustments for that. That's why it'll go back um, to that year exactly. Uh, that's not super strong evidence, but it, it helps. Uh, it helps us put in uh, an, an early date. So early date's important. Uh, now one more reason early date's important. If you take a late date, now you have to believe that all the rest of the, the chronological markers in the Old Testament are way off. And that's easy for you if you decide that the Exodus wasn't true. If the Exodus wasn't true, then all the other chronological markers in Scripture don't have to be true either. And now you've started this erosion toward questioning Scripture, which started in the mid-1800s, ironically, at the same time as the theory of what came to be, theory of evolution. Now we're questioning Scripture all over the place. So rather than question scripture, I, I'd rather stand before God, put it this way, I'd rather stand before God and have him say, you know, the miracles, it actually was red mud. I thought it was a great trick. Why didn't you believe that? I'd rather stand before God and have him say that than have him say, why didn't you believe I can perform miracles? Why didn't you believe I can do what I said? And I'll say this as well. Um, when the Bible says that, that water turned to blood, just take it literally. What did it turn to? Blood. Put it under a microscope. The doctor would go, hey, that's blood. That's what he would say. So um, we want to believe the Bible at face value and, and let, uh, let it speak for itself. So that's why that date is important. What other questions? Another one. Yes. From the front. Trying to throw me under the bus, aren't you? <laughs> the question is, uh, how did, the, uh, how did the, the wizards and the sorcerers of Pharaoh perform some of the same uh, little miracles that, uh, that seem to be from God? Um, we're studying, studying Satan and his schemes. And Satan, what has always been his goal, it is to replicate God in whatever fashion he can. So little, little tricks here and there. Some people say, well, it was some sort of magic trick. Uh, I, I don't think so. It was pretty supernatural um, in that, for example, Pharaoh's uh, magicians uh, turned their staffs into snakes too, but what did Moses' uh, staff do? Or Aaron's staff, it came and ate theirs. All right, you, you, want, you want to compete with me that way? Well, I'll eat your staff. Um, so they, they, were, they were supernatural things happening. Um, when somebody sees a UFO, are they really seeing something? Yes. Are there little green men? No. But the satanic realm uh, certainly is able to conjure things. Um, the book of Revelation uh, is just this dark instance in which Antichrist will fake a resurrection. And it doesn't say whether it's faked or not. I don't think Satan has the power to raise men from the dead. Um, but maybe in, in one instance, God allows that to happen because there's a replication to make Antichrist seem just like Christ. And what happens when Antichrist is said to be raised from the dead? The whole world comes to worship him. Ironically, when Christ was raised from the dead, the whole world did not come to worship him. So, uh, yes, supernatural stuff. Yeah, Logan. Another theological conundrum. The question is, uh, God told, or, or uh, uh, Exodus 33 says that uh, God used to speak to Moses face to face, but then he says, you shall, because uh, Moses said, uh, I want to see your glory. 
And God said, I'll show you my back, but not my face. Uh, what is that? Well, first of all, speaking to someone face to face, that's that's indicative of um, fellowship, of communion. God is spirit. There, there wasn't a face of God to see. So that's indicative of communion and fellowship. The other instance where God said, I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll show you my back. Um, that's the idea. If you, if you remember that, the glory that God showed was not a thunder and light show. The glory that he showed are the, is the words that he spoke. And it's one of the rare times where Yahweh repeats himself. I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And he speaks these words that I forgive some and I render judgment on others. And so he gave his glory from, um, from the, the fact that he gave words, which is phenomenal. I, I've preached the whole message on, on Exodus 34 and, and um, I don't remember which series it was in, but I'd encourage you to go get it. But God used to speak to Moses face to face. Um, it's not a contradiction. It just simply means they were in, in communion together. God spoke to Moses um, verbally, audibly. That Moses wasn't going, I think I have this impression. I had a dream and I, I'll write it down. Oh, look, Exodus. No, when it says the Lord said to Moses, there were real words that he, were, he was hearing. How do we know this? Because that's what happened at the, the burning bush. Now, let me put this in one other, let me throw a wrench in the works here. Does God have a face that is human? Yes, in the person of Jesus Christ. When God appeared to Moses in Exodus 3, it doesn't say, and I'm sorry for all the coloring pages you've grown up with and your kids have colored, it doesn't say that God appeared as a burning bush. It says God appeared in a burning bush and he is called the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord said, take off your sandals and get on your knees, essentially is what that means, and worship because the place you're standing is holy ground. Why? Because I'm here. Who is the angel of the Lord? It is an Old Testament appearing of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh, who is the Son of God. So, is it possible that there are unrecorded instances of when God spoke to Moses face to face that he had a visitation from the Son of God? It's very possible because we know it happened at least once. So that could be the best explanation, I think. Um, how cool is that? That uh, and I'm gonna, uh, That's probably one of the passages I'll do when we do our Christmas series. I'm going to be preaching on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. Christ preparing the way for his own ministry on earth. So does that answer that a little bit? It's never a contradiction, which is great to always go into that assumption. What are the questions we have? I have time for maybe one more. Yeah, wait. Sure. Do you have a recording of that statute? It is. Jesus said, not a jot, not a tittle of the, of the law will pass away. It will always be a statute. It will not always be um, a statute that is applied to all peoples all time and all the time. Um, and on top of that, this is a longer argument. There are places in Scripture where God uses the, uh, the, the Hebrew word halam forever um, to mean for a really, really, really long time. That doesn't mean that, uh, that it's never used to mean forever and ever. But So you have to take all of Scripture. This is what's called uh, the intertextual study of Scripture and Scripture interpreting Scripture. Uh, if he says Passover is forever, then let's look at this two ways can forever mean a really, really, really long time. Yes, it can. Do we have Passover today? Be careful. Yes, we do. Who is our Passover lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ. So while maybe the symbol isn't forever, the outworking of it is. So it's very easy for God to say this is going on forever and ever. Why do we still study the Old Testament when we're not under that law? Because it represents the very character of God, which will always be the same. Always will. So does that answer your question a little bit? All right. I said we had time for one more. We have time for one more. Let's see. We've had three on this side, one over here. We're a little light over here. Anybody, any questions on this side? 
Yes, Serena. You know, that's interesting. He was raised in Pharaoh's house, but he was also um, the, the genius of God to have his sister Miriam go run, who was probably six years older than him, go run to Pharaoh's daughter and say, hey, you know, since you're a princess and you're busy, uh, we have a, uh, I've, I've got somebody who just happens to have had a baby recently and she could nurse this boy. Um, and so they would have kept him, I know this creeps us out a little bit, they would have kept him nursing for probably three or four years. I know it's weird when you see a kid who's four feet tall still nursing and you're like, all right, we need to be done with that. That's why they made Gerber. Um, but so in that time, first of all, in those years, those are the formative years and they didn't have anything else to do except tell stories. And so they, Moses could have gotten a ton of information there. Secondly, we also know that um, he was very aware of his own heritage. He killed an Egyptian um, because, uh, because of an argument and they were accusing him and they made him run away. And so he, we know he was aware of his heritage. He knew who they were. Um, it wasn't like he was trapped in the palace as he's being educated. Um, he would get to know um, these people. He was very aware of that. Um, and so even that's historical evidence, that's external. The best evidence we have, though, is that Moses is the author of Genesis. Um, he's the one who literally knew more than anybody about the patriarchs. Now, how did he get Genesis? Well, we don't know. Was it God telling him the story? He's going, wow, this is good, and writing this down? Or was it um, the inspired version of the stories he had been told? Well, there are certain things he had to have received. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Where did he get that? He had to get that from God. So um, absolutely, he was aware of his heritage, and um, it was unfortunate that he uh, sinned in a way that he had to run away, but that's how God used uh, that time. Can you imagine Moses' career didn't even start until he was 80? It's like being Prince Charles right now, you know? Like, wow, Mom, didn't know you were going to live for 400 years. Um, that, that's out of left field. Sorry for whoever's <laughs> listening to this. So yes, he was very aware of his heritage, and probably... probably um, I, I can't imagine what kind of uh, psychologists call this cognitive dissonance, what kind of fight must have been happening inside of him. Um, so, all right, now we do need to be done. That, that was fun. Hope you enjoyed that. Let Exodus bless your heart as it has mine. Let's pray briefly. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've had together. We praise you for this incredible picture of redemption. And just like you opened the waters of the Red Sea to let your people through, you have opened the doors of salvation and we have run through, Lord, while they are open because you have led us with the Shekinah glory, the very presence of Christ. And you have led us forward to the promised land of salvation from our sin. We love you and we thank you for this grand picture which is really most ultimately fulfilled in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.